save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. In 2011, a team of archaeologists were in the city of Lucca, close to the sea at Piombino, in Italy's Tuscany region, looking for the remains of St. Serbonius, the local patron saint. They were digging in a graveyard connected to the town's 800-year-old church when they came up with something unexpected. There they discovered the skeletal remains of two women, whom the archaeologists believed to have been between 25 to 30 years old at the time of their death. Now, finding skeletons in a graveyard isn't exactly a big surprise, but it's the way these women were buried that struck everyone as unusual. They were buried in a shallow grave, with no coffin or funeral shroud, and no grave marker to indicate who they were. Because of the unusual items they were found buried with, the archaeologists had a pretty good idea of the circumstances that led to their deaths. You see, based on the evidence on hand, the archaeologists came to the conclusion that the women were witches. One of the women's bodies was surrounded by 17 dice. 17 in ancient times was considered a cursed number, and dice was a game that women would have been forbidden from playing during the Middle Ages. It's the other woman's skeleton that points to an even more gruesome and macabre fate for the pair. Seven nails were found driven into the woman's jaw, while an additional 13 nails were scattered around her remains for the purpose, the archaeologists believe, of pinning her clothes to the ground so that she wouldn't rise from the dead. Because the women were buried in consecrated Christian ground, the archaeologists believe they likely would have come from wealthy, influential families, and that it appears they had been buried following some sort of exorcism ritual. Throughout history, there have been many such stories of people who have been accused of being witches, people who were accused of consorting with the devil, and bringing misfortune to those around them through black magic and evil curses. And as so often happened in many stories, whenever a force of evil appeared to threaten the good people, there were those who rose up in the name of righteousness to combat that evil. At least that's how these stories are supposed to go. People tend to see themselves as the heroes of their own personal narrative. Knowing in your heart that you're working for the forces of good makes it easier to justify your actions, no matter how terrible those actions may be. But when you look at history and you hear the stories of the horrendous things many of these so-called witch hunters did in the name of good, you have to ask yourself, just who were the real villains of the story? 
I'm Nate Hale, wondering why the sorting hat put me in Slytherin. And this is The Conspirators. The persecution of witches dates back as far as our earliest recorded history. Both ancient Egypt and Babylonia had specific codes written into their laws about the ways in which anyone caught practicing sorcery should be punished. The Twelve Tables of the Roman Empire, which date back to 451 BC, contain provisions against evil spells and the magicians who cast them, and the punishments were almost always death. By the year 331, 170 Roman women were executed as witches after they were accused of causing a plague that swept through the region. In the centuries that followed, the Roman government began cracking down more and more on activities they believed were related to the practice of sorcery and divination, resulting in thousands of executions. But the Romans weren't alone in condemning the practice of witchcraft. The Hebrew Bible contained passages explicitly condemning sorcery. And in the first century BC, Rabbi Simeon ben Shatak sentenced to death 80 women who had been accused of being witches. But in that particular instance, many of the relatives of those who were put to death took revenge by testifying against Rabbi Simeon's son, causing him to be executed in turn. For a time throughout the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church maintained a hands-off approach to witches. For several centuries, it was commonplace to find local fortune tellers or even court magicians practicing their trade throughout European kingdoms. The official stance of the Catholic Church was that anyone caught trying to execute a person for witchcraft would himself be put to death. But attitudes changed, and by the 14th and 15th centuries, the persecution of alleged witches was back in full force. You see, by then, the Church's thinking about the devil had changed as well. If you go back and read early drafts of the Bible, the devil is a rather abstract concept, something for people to be concerned about and avoid, but he's not so much of a physical presence. But by the late 1300s, the church decided it needed a more concrete physical being for them to oppose. So they began to commission artists to depict the devil in paintings as a living creature. That's where the image of the horn-wearing, cloven-hooved devil we all think of today originated from. Witch hunting really exploded in the year 1487 with the publishing of the Malleus Maleficarum, the first official treatise on witchcraft. The book's title roughly translates to The Hammer of Witches, which, aside from sounding like a really great title for a heavy metal album, contained concrete instructions for people to identify and punish witches. The book was written by a pair of Catholic clergymen named Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Sprenger in 1487 and a lot of it seems focused on the sexual proclivities of women. Which, if you've been following along, was pretty typical of the way women were treated throughout the Middle Ages. The persecution of witches has often been inherently misogynistic, since the vast majority of those accused were women. Many historians think that a primary reason so many women were accused of being witches was to keep them in check in a male-dominated society. Maintaining control has always been an underlying reason for witch hunts, it doesn't matter if any of it makes sense. As long as you can blame a particular group of people for the reasons the crops are failing or a child is born stillborn, then it makes it much easier for those in authority to maintain power. The persecution of witches always seemed to increase at times when the church felt like it was losing its grip on society. 
By the 17th century, more and more people were being educated. And as a result, more and more people were turning to science for answers rather than the church. The Church of England saw the threat this newfound belief in science was causing them, and they knew they had to do something about it. At the same time, Britain was fighting an ongoing civil war that threatened to destabilize the regime. So the church decided to come up with an enemy the people could rally against. In this case, it was witches. And as the warnings began to spread throughout the countryside about the dangerous minions of Satan that were living among them, so did the profession of witch hunter come to be. And of all the witch hunters throughout the 17th century, there is no name more notorious than that of Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. Little is known of Hopkins' early life, but in just two short years, Hopkins was responsible for hanging more people for witchcraft than had been done in the previous 100 years combined. Between 1644 and 1646, it's estimated that Hopkins may have been personally responsible for the deaths of more than 300 women, making he and his partner John Stern the most prolific witch hunters in history. Based on the way Hopkins presented evidence at each alleged witch's trial, it's thought that he may have been trained as a lawyer, but there's very little evidence to say when or where this training may have occurred. According to Hopkins' book, The Discovery of Witches, he began his career as a witch finder after overhearing a meeting of several women discussing their meetings with the devil. He appointed himself the Witchfinder General because no such title existed. From there he began traveling the English countryside rooting out the minions of Satan he knew were out there. He was a cruel man, with no reservations about resorting to torture in order to get a confession out of the accused. One of the first things Hopkins and other witch hunters like him would look for was the Devil's Mark, a mole or other skin imperfection that was thought to be impervious to pain. To prove his point, Hopkins would drive sharp needles deep into the accused's skin. In the midst of many witch hunts, villagers were known to sometimes burn off or cut off any offending marks that might be used against them, which typically backfired when Hopkins would then label their wounds as further proof of their covenant with the devil. Hopkins would keep the accused awake for days at a time until they were so weary they would confess to pretty much anything he asked. Similar techniques are still employed today to obtain confessions out of suspected criminals and terrorists. Then, of course, there was the infamous water test. Hopkins would bind the accused and drop them into bodies of water. And if by some miracle they didn't drown, then that was definitive proof they were a witch. Afterwards, they would then be brought back to shore and hanged or burned alive. Hopkins went on like this for two years and he was responsible for killing so many people that even the church began to take notice and eventually condemned his actions. Stories differ about what happened to him after that. Some say he died of consumption in 1648, whereas another tale, which is likely apocryphal, but no doubt fitting if true, says that he himself was accused of witchcraft and ended up failing the water test by drowning. Of course we can't talk about the persecution of witches and not speak of the most infamous case in history, the Salem Witch Trials. They occurred in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693, during which time more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, 20 of whom were executed. In 1689, English rulers William and Mary started a war with France in the American colonies. 
King William's War, as it came to be known, tore through New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, sending large numbers of refugees into Essex County. Many of them ended up in the village of Salem, which put a massive strain on the town's resources. Civil unrest ensued between the wealthiest members of Salem society and members of the poor farming community. Tension grew throughout Salem, and only grew worse as it was egged along by the village's first ordained minister, Samuel Paris. Paris had a terrible reputation for greed and for being a harsh taskmaster in the church. In January of 1692, Reverend Paris's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth and his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams began having bizarre fits. They screamed, threw things, and began uttering strange sounds and contorting their bodies in unnatural ways. Soon a third girl, 11-year-old Ann Putnam, began exhibiting similar symptoms. The town doctor examined the three girls and came to one conclusion. They were all under the influence of the devil. The girls were put under pressure by some of the local magistrates to prove they weren't consorting with the devil. So they put the blame on three other women, Tituba, the Paris's Caribbean slave, and Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, a pair of local beggars. All three women were brought before the Salem magistrates and interrogated for days. Good and Osborne swore they were innocent. Tatuba tried to help the court out by baking for them a supernatural dessert called a witch cake that was supposed to be able to root out evildoers. According to the legend, if you fed the cake to a witch's familiar, in this case a dog, the familiar would then lead you to the witch. But the cake didn't work, and the court used Tatuba's knowledge of spells and folk remedies as proof she was a witch. As a result, all three women were put in jail. By now, outright paranoia was growing throughout the community. If these three women could be witches, then anyone could be. The magistrates even accused Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter of consorting with the devil. By April 1692, dozens of people were being brought before the magistrates and accused of being witches. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court to handle all the witchcraft accusations throughout the region. The first case brought before them was a woman named Bridget Bishop, an older woman with a reputation for gossip and promiscuity. Bishop swore she was innocent of the charges, but she was soon found guilty, and she became the first person to hang on Gallows Hill on June 10th. She wouldn't be the last. Just a few days later, the well-respected minister, Cotton Mather, wrote a letter to the court imploring them to not allow a spectral testimony about dreams and visions to be used as evidence. The request was ignored, and by the following September, 18 more people had been tried, convicted, and hanged. By October, Governor Phipps began to realize he'd made a huge mistake when his own wife was brought before the court and questioned. He dissolved the original court and replaced it with a new superior court of judicature, which followed Mather's request to disallow all spectral evidence. The new court only condemned three out of 56 defendants brought before them. And by May of 1693, Governor Phipps pardoned all the prisoners and eventually compensated the families of those convicted. But by then the damage had already been done. In just under a year, 19 people had been hanged and a 71-year-old man had been pressed to death under large stones. Contrary to what the movies have told you, no witches were burned at the stake in Salem. 
In recent years, some toxicologists have put forth a theory that the original three girls and other local residents who exhibited strange behavior may have been the victims of ergot poisoning. Ergot is a particularly dangerous strain of fungus that can grow in wheat and rye, the symptoms of which include vomiting, muscle spasms, and hallucinations. Ergot thrives in warm and damp climates, much like the swampy meadows all around Salem Village. But although we might like to think of all these episodes as something out of a bygone era, the persecution of witches is something that has continued well into the modern day. It's difficult to imagine this sort of activity still occurring in the 20th century. But in the late 1920s, an alleged witch was put to the test in York County, Pennsylvania, with deadly results. Nelson Raymeyer lived in York County back in 1928. He was a practitioner of a form of ritual folk magic called powwowing that began with the Pennsylvania Dutch after the publication of a book in 1820 by German author John George Holman. The book was called The Long Lost Friend, a collection of folk remedies, spells, and talismans to cure ailments and domestic troubles. Eventually, the recipes contained within that book became entwined with other Dutch folk traditions and became published in English as powwows. Nelson Raymeyer's neighbor was a man named John Blymeyer, who began to suspect that he'd been cursed after suffering from years of illness and bad luck. He consulted a local witch named Nellie Knoll, also known as the River Witch of Marietta, about his troubles. She told him that it was Raymeyer who had cursed him, and that the only way to lift the curse would be to find and burn his copy of Powwows and bury a lock of the man's hair six feet under the ground. So on a rainy November night in 1928, Blymeyer, along with two young accomplices, 14-year-old John Curry and 18-year-old Wilbert Hess went to Raymeyer's home. But none of them were brave enough at that time to go through with it, so they all just stood outside in the rain watching until morning. The next night they returned, only this time they did break into the house. It took all three of them to tackle Raymeyer, who stood over six feet tall. But even after they bludgeoned him and tied him up, they couldn't get the location of the book out of him. So they finally beat the man to death, then doused him in kerosene and set him on fire. But because Raymeyer's body wasn't completely consumed by the blaze, that convinced Blymeyer and his two accomplices that the Hounds of Hell had protected him. The resulting trial, which came to be known as the York Witch Trial, caused a nationwide sensation for revealing the practice of witchcraft was alive and well in the U.S. The house where Nelson Raymeyer is still standing and his descendants have preserved the structure as it was back in 1928, right down to the scorched wood floor where the man was burned and turned it into a historical attraction. Stories of witchcraft and murder have continued all through the 20th century up until today. Modern-day witch hunts still happen in Africa, the Pacific, Latin America, and even among immigrant communities in the U.S. and Europe. In 2011, a court in Saudi Arabia sentenced a man and woman in separate cases to beheading after convictions for sorcery. In January 2014, a man from Queens, New York, was arrested for beating to death with a hammer his girlfriend and her daughter for being witches. In 2012, the Guardian newspaper reported that London police had investigated 81 cases of ritual abuse of children accused of demonic possession or witchcraft. 
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at On Valentine's Day 1945, 74-year-old farmhand Charles Walton went to work one morning in the town of Lower Quinton. He planned on making an early start to remove some hedges from the slopes of Meon Hill. But by that evening, Charles's niece Edith, whom he lived with, began to get worried when Charles failed to return home. By the time it got dark, Edith went out to search for her uncle, along with his employer Alfred Potter and a friend Harry Beasley. What they found shocked them all. They discovered Charles's body in the field where he'd been working that day. His billhook, a tool for trimming hedges, was buried in his neck. A pitchfork had also been driven through his throat. Whoever had done it had used such force they actually bent back the prongs striking the frozen ground beneath. It took several police officers to pull it back out. They also found Walton's walking stick nearby matted with blood and hair indicating that he'd been savagely beaten with it. If all that wasn't bad enough, someone had also carved a large crucifix into his chest. The murder was so bizarre, the local constables called in Scotland Yard to aid in the investigation. The Yard sent famed detective Robert Fabian and his assistant, Sergeant Albert Webb. The inspectors immediately began questioning the people who knew Walton personally since the violent nature of the murder seemed to indicate the killer held a grudge towards him. But as far as anyone would say, everyone liked Walton. One piece of evidence the police were eager to find and hoped that it would lead them to a suspect was Walton's pocket watch that he was known to carry with him everywhere. But it was not found on the body or anywhere nearby. Suspicion soon fell on Walton's employer, Albert Potter. Potter was known to be short-tempered and he had a reputation for paying his employees late. He was allegedly embezzling funds and juggling the cash between creditors to keep this from being found out. Potter gave inconsistent statements to the police on several occasions, but despite the circumstantial evidence, no charges were ever made against him. The inspectors from Scotland Yard were stymied in their investigation by a wall of silence throughout the community. All the locals seemed nervous, and no one wanted to talk about what happened. It was unclear whether they were wary of outsiders or were they scared of something else. With no suspects or even a possible motive, another eerie rumor began to surface that Walton may have been a witch. It seemed that everyone in town knew Walton to some degree. He had lived and worked there his entire life. And although he appeared to be well-liked, there were some people who noticed a few quirks about the man. Wild birds would flock toward Walton and feed on seeds directly from his hands. Some people said he could tame and control wild dogs simply by talking to them. Walton appeared to be well-versed in local folklore, a little too much by some accounts. Although the inspectors from Scotland Yard began to think the murder may have been the work of a random maniac, the local police superintendent, Alex Spooner, began to develop another theory. He came across a book titled Folklore, Old Customs, and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land that recounted the story of a similar event that took place in 1875. 
The book said that a young man named John Hayward killed a woman named Ann Turner by pinning her to the ground with a pitchfork and cutting a crucifix into her neck because she had bewitched him. In the same book, there was another story about a young boy who encountered a mysterious black dog for nine days straight. The dog, the book implied, was actually a supernatural creature sent from beyond to torment the boy. Even stranger, the boy's name was Charles Walton. There's no evidence to support the idea that the young man mentioned in the book was the same Charles Walton, but the coincidence is striking nonetheless. The inspectors from Scotland Yard were shaken by the stories revealed in the book, but they ultimately chose to discount them since they knew there was no such thing as witches. They were modern investigators, after all, who dealt in facts, not fantasy. Inspector Fabian did learn that in the old Julian calendar, February 14th, when the murder occurred, would have originally been February 2nd. And according to local superstition, February 2nd was the ideal day to perform a blood sacrifice. Since this was the time when Earth was recovering from winter, and a ritual sacrifice was considered the best way to provide a good harvest. The detectives looked into Walton's past and found out that he had become a widower back in 1927, and had inherited a tidy sum of money. But when they checked bank records, nearly all the money was gone, and there was no indication what happened to it. The case eventually grew cold, and the detectives were forced to admit defeat and return to London. Before he left, Inspector Fabian made one final trip to the scene of the crime. That's when he saw a large black dog sprint past him. He mentioned the dog to a boy who came along soon after. The boy turned as white as a sheet and fled in terror. Later that day, a similar-sized dog was found hanging from its neck from a tree not far from the scene. In August 1960, workmen were dispatched to demolish the outhouses behind Charles Walton's old cottage. One of the workmen spotted something shiny inside the structure. It was Walton's old tin pocket watch. The very same watch everyone swore he never let out of his sight. It supposedly went missing the day of the murder. Police claimed that they had searched the outhouse shortly after the murder, but they didn't find the watch there. Something else very curious was found inside the watch. It was a small piece of colored glass. Police didn't know what it was for, but the local villagers did. According to legend, a piece of colored glass could be used to ward off evil. They even had a name for it. They called it witch glass. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. This episode was brought to you by a generous donation from Corralbin Community Broadband. Corralbin Community Broadband, keeping community connected. I also wanted to give special thanks to Mary and Maria for their generous donations as well. Every little bit helps defray the costs of research, web hosting, and all sorts of other costs involved with bringing this podcast to you every week. You can help us out too by clicking the donate button on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We also invite you to spread the word and tell your friends and family about our show, and to encourage them to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening.